All right, good evening, everybody. You want to go ahead and find your places. We will get started. If you want to follow along, um, as the slide says, we're going to be in Romans chapter 12. We're going to be covering two verses tonight, um, verse 11 and verse uh, 12. We're really doing two lessons. Uh, the title is Passion and Perseverance. And so the first half of the lesson will be on passion. Uh, we'll take that out of verse 11. The second half of the lesson will be on perseverance, and we will take that out of um, in verse 12. So let's start with passion. Let's read verse 11. <clears throat> the ESV says this, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. The New Living Translation puts it this way, Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Now, when you see these two terms in verse 11, one of them says, work hard, and the other one says, be enthusiastic. And if you're not careful, you may think that this is just two ways of saying the same thing. But it actually turns out that these two statements balance one another so that you and I don't get the wrong idea. Let me give you an example. What if Paul had just said this to us? What if he had just said, never be lazy, but work hard? And that's all he said. Well, if he had said that, we might take that to mean that what really matters in the Christian life is that we work, 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 and get her done. In other words, it don't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter if, you, if you're enthusiastic, if you feel good about it or feel bad about it. None of that matters. What matters is that we just are pragmatically, we work and we get things done. And of course, if we're not careful and we take it that way, then we would think, well, what really matters in the Christian life is work hard. That laziness is the, is the greatest vice and hard work and efficiency would be the greatest uh, virtues. The counterpart to that and the way Paul balances this out is he says, be fervent in spirit. Now, I love this word fervent. The Greek word means boiling. It literally means boiling. Be boiling in spirit, like boiling water in a pot. So the idea here is clearly that you're not, he's not just talking about working hard and your feelings are not in view or the spirit's not in view. Clearly, when he says, be boiling in your spirit, be fervent, the idea is your emotions, your feelings, your spirit, what you feel on the inside is just as important as the doing or the work. And by the way, the same thing is true the other way around. What if, for example... Paul had only said, be fervent in spirit. And that's all he said. Well, if that's all he had said, you and I might think, well, what really matters in the Christian life is that we're passionate. It doesn't really matter if we actually do anything. It doesn't really matter if we accomplish anything. What really matters is that we are passionate about Christ. That feeling, that fervency, that bullying in spirit is what really matters. But that won't do either, right? So what Paul wants us to see is both sides of the coin. He wants to make sure that we don't overemphasize one over the other. Don't just feel a lot, but do a lot. Don't just do a lot, but feel a lot. Passion and works are important. Now, 
Whenever I talk about works, I always have to stop and make sure that I am making myself very clear. The gospel teaches us very clearly that we are saved by faith, not by works. And the, the bellwether text, if you will, on this is Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Paul says this, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we are saved by grace through faith. It has nothing to do with works. However, look at the very next verse. Paul says, because or for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Say it with me. For good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. So we are clearly not saved by good works, but we are absolutely saved for good works. And that is very clear. Um, I, I ran across something years ago, and I've got it in my notes somewhere. And it was a quick comparison of the religion and the gospel. What religion and the gospel. And, it had, and we're, I'm actually going to bring a few of these things out tonight so you can see them. But this is one of the comparisons between religion and the gospel. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. I like that, right? doesn't mean we don't work, but works is not the basis of our acceptance. Our acceptance is the basis of our works. That's the difference between religion and the gospel. We should always be working. The Bible is clear about that. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in, your, in the Lord your service or your labor is not in vain. But here's the thing. Our work should come out of our passion. The same way that steam rises from a boiling pot, in that same way, work should come out of a fervent spirit. When we're passionate about God, we're passionate about Christ, we're passionate about His Word, works have to come off of that or come out of that just as steam comes out of a, of a boiling pot. Now, a lot of people might say, well, now, come on, is passion really that important? See, I think as Americans, and we've just got this idea, you, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you work hard, you get it done, right? Is passion, is that really that important? And if it is, can I back it up with Scripture? Well, certainly. Let me give you a few Scriptures. We all know the story. Matthew 22, a lawyer comes up to Jesus and says to him, What is the greatest commandment in the Bible? And Jesus said this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind, and all your strength, and all your soul. He doesn't want part of your mind. He doesn't want part of your strength. He doesn't want part of you. He wants all of you. That's passion, right? It, it, it matters that we love Him with everything that we have. In Revelations 3, 15 and 16, Jesus said this, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other, but because you are lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. He wants us to be hot. He wants us to be passionate about Him and about what He's done for us. So intensity and passion and zeal and fervor, those things matter in the Christian life. We shouldn't settle for anything less. In fact, one of our jobs is to 
spread a passion for the glory of God, for the supremacy of God. But how can you spread what you don't have? You know, I mean, people should look at us and say, man, if nothing else, that guy is passionate about what he believes, right? Um, You know, I I like that in people. I like to see passion. I, I know it's real in their life. Now, the question is, some of you may be sitting here thinking, well, you know, right now, I'm just not that passionate. How do I get that if I don't have it? Well, I'm going to give you two things. Number one, you need to ask for it. You need to ask for it. In Ephesians 1, 16 through 19, Paul is praying this prayer. By the way, he's praying for the church at Ephesus. Uh, he's recording it in the Word, so he's praying this for us as well. He says this, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, and this is what he's praying for, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us from belief. Listen, when you ask for those things and God opens your eyes and you see his power and you see his beauty and you see his glory, let me tell you, passion will fire like that. There's nothing like that. There's nothing like understanding and knowing and seeing the reality of Christ and the Christian faith. So the first thing we do is we ask for it. The second thing is we have to seek for it. Jeremiah 29, 13 says this, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You know, we've got not just to ask for it, but we've got to go for it. We've got to get in this word and we've got to read his word and study his word and, 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 and look for him to reveal himself through his word. Seek him. And if we do that with all our heart, he promises us that we will find him. Now, I've talked a lot about passion, why passion is important, how to get passion. But I want you to notice the focus of the passion. Let's read Romans 12, 11 again. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. You know, I've often said being saved is the greatest thing in the world. There's, there's absolutely nothing like it. I mean, just think, when you're saved, you get eternal life, right? You have eternal life. Let me say that again. You have eternal life. You cannot die. You cannot die. You will live forever in perfection. The, the, the danger of judgment is gone. It's gone. It's, nothing's hanging over my head. Nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Everything that I go through in this life is working for my good. Not only is it working, all of my troubles and tribulations and pains and sorrow, Scripture says, is producing for me an eternal weight of glory. Folks, if you can't be passionate about that, something's wrong. Something is absolutely wrong. If you're more passionate about hunting and fishing than you are about Christ, something's wrong. If you're more passionate about money than you are about Christ, something's wrong. If you're more passionate about shopping, if you're more passionate about anything other than Christ, something is wrong. The reality of Christ is something's missing. You're not seeing what you have. Yet, I want you to understand that Paul never says that just having passion in and of itself is valuable. He says our passion has to have a focus. It has to have an an outlet. 
and that outlet is serving Jesus Christ. Now, here's what I want you to understand tonight. We are all in this room, everybody outside, everybody serving something or someone. Everybody serving something or someone. Some people are serving their appetites. It's what Paul said in Romans 16, 17 through 18. He says this, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but they serve their own appetites. You see, you serve your appetites when you treat those things as more compelling than Christ. If you love money, if it's more compelling to you than Christ, then you're serving your appetite for money. And that's just one example. Anything in your life that's more compelling, that, that's, that's more alluring, that, that's more enticing than Christ, and you're serving that, you are serving your appetites. For example, if, if Christ calls you to self-control and calls you to purity, and your appetites call you to self-indulgence and maybe sexual license, and you give in to those things, then you're serving your appetites. You're not serving Christ. And when you do that, what you're saying is, Christ, you're not as valuable as those things to me. Money or sex or, or, or alcohol or drugs or work or whatever that you put up there on that pedestal is more alluring, more enticing, more valuable than you are. And you're serving your appetites. Some people serve their appetites. Some people serve other people. Now, this is an odd thing to say because obviously we're to serve other people, right? But I want you to watch what Paul says in Ephesians 6 about how we're to serve other people. He says this, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Paul says when you serve other people, don't do it so people can see you. Don't be a people pleaser. Don't do it so people can like you and pat you on the back and tell you what a great person you are. Do it as if you're doing it unto the Lord. So the wrong way to serve people is to be a slave to their approval. To go through life serving other people because you want everybody to like you and you don't want anybody to criticize you or anything like that. And that is a, by the way, that is a great bondage for many people in this life. They're not free they're not free to serve Christ because they're a slave to other people's criticisms and other people's opinions. They're not free to really be who they are in Christ because they always live with an eye toward what do they think about me. So even our service to others at the end of the day ultimately belongs to one person and that's Jesus Christ. He is an audience of one that we are serving. By the way, this brings me to another section of that uh, uh, little booklet I was telling you about, Religion and the Gospel. Religion says this, and I love this, says this, when I'm criticized, I am furious or devastated because it is essential for me to think of myself as a good person. I, man, if that doesn't describe the world that we're living in today, I don't know what is. There are people out there today, and it, it is essential, they don't want to hear about sin, they don't want to hear about hell. They don't want to hear about judgment. They don't want to hear about any of that. They just want to sit in their sin and believe 
I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And anybody that tries to point out and say, no, you're not, they will get furious at that. They do not want to hear it. Because you see, in this, whether it's the religion of atheism or the religion of secular humanisms, which are a religion, they have their own set of beliefs. In those religions, it's all about, I'm a good person. And anything that comes against that, they will react with fury. They will react with anger because they don't want anybody telling them they're not a good person. The gospel, though, when we get criticism, it's not essential for me to think of myself. By the way, if you want to know, I'm not a good person. I'm not a good person. But I, it's not essential for me to hold on to that because my identity is not in me being a good person. My identity is in him. My identity is who I am in Christ. I'm accepted. I'm bought and paid for and redeemed and ransomed and adopted. That's my identity. So you can criticize me and I'm like, okay, yeah, I mean, it, it, get, it might hurt my feelings a little bit, but I'm not going to react in anger because I'm just going to move on because I'm accepted in Him. It's, I, it's not, everybody with me? It's not, I don't have to believe that I'm a good person. So some people are serving their appetite. Some people are serving others. Some people serve the law. Romans 7, 6 says this, Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. Listen, some people are serving rules and regulations and laws, and, and i got to do this and i got to do that and I do this and I do that, and as long as I do all those things, I'm okay. But see, that is deadly because the Bible tells us in Romans 3.20 that by the works of the law... No man or woman will ever be justified. You will never be made right with Christ. So as people, as Christians, we don't look to our own pedigree. We don't look to our race. We don't look to our gender. We don't look to our, our social status. We don't look to our nationality. We don't look to our, our own moral code. We don't look to our, uh, our, our personal discipline or any of those things as the basis of our acceptance with Christ. with Christ. That's the law. Those things are the law. And listen to me, the law is a false religion and it kills. You rely on that, you will never be justified in the eyes of God. One more thing on the religion and gospel. Religion says this, since I look to my own performance, my heart manufactures idols, my talents, my moral code, my discipline, my status. I have to have those things because they're my hope. You see, if you're living according to the law and you just think, boy, if I just, if I just obey all these rules and I pray the right amount and I read the Bible and I go to church and I tithe and I do all them things, I'm a good person. If that's your religion, then you're going to have to create these idols in your life. Look how moral I am. Look how talented I am. Look how disciplined I am. You have to have those things because they're your hope. You've put all your hope in those things. Now look at the gospel. The gospel says it looks at it completely different. Listen, I have blessings in my life. Right? I have blessings in my life. But those things aren't ultimate to me. I don't have to have them. Those things don't have a hold on my life because my hope isn't in my behavior. My hope isn't in my moral code. My hope isn't in my talents or my work ethic or my discipline. My hope is in Him. My hope is in Him. That's the difference between religion and the gospel. Listen, serving Christ 
is the greatest life there is. It, it really is what life is all about. So Paul wants us to see, don't be lazy in your zeal. Boil in the Spirit as you serve the Lord. All right, let's turn to verse 12, and we're going to talk about perseverance or endurance, okay? Let's read it in both the ESV and the NLT. The ESV, verse 12, says this, <clears throat> Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. The New Living Translation says, Rejoice in our confident hope, be patient in trouble, and keep on praying. Now, I want to focus for the next few minutes on tribulation and trouble. Okay, let's go back and read it again. He says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. The one thing that I want to pick out first to focus on is tribulation and trouble. And I want to do that for a couple reasons. Number one, it's different from all the other things that we've been told in, in Romans 12 so far. Things like love. Remember what it said? Let your love be genuine. Love one another uh, with a genuine love. Honor one another. Uh, it tells us to rejoice in hope. Be patient. All of those things are things that we experience or do, right? I can honor you. I can respect you. I can love you. I can actively participate in those things. But tribulation is different. Tribulation is not something I do. It's something that's done to me. You see the difference? In other words, it's something that somebody else does to me, or maybe it's something that just happens to me. Tribulation just means trouble. So it's something kind of outside of my control. Another difference, if you look at all those other things like love, joy, hope, patience, they're all virtues. They are evidences of grace that we have in the Christian life. But folks, tribulation is not a virtue. Once again, it's, it's, it's just something that happens to us. So it's different in that way as well. So I want to spend a few moments tonight talking about tribulation. And here's the first thing we need to understand Tribulation or trouble in this life is absolutely normal. Okay, it's absolutely normal. It is a normal experience of believers in this life, and it is to be expected. Okay, let me give you a few scriptures because scripture tells us this repeatedly. Job 5, 7 says, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Job 14, 1, man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. Jesus said this in John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you might have some trouble. Is that what he said? What does he say? You're going to have it. You're going to have trouble. Take heart. I've overcome the world. In Acts 14, 21 to 2, I can't remember if it was Paul and Silas or Paul and Barnabas. I think it was Paul and Barnabas had been out preaching. And it says this, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, let me tell you what they're not saying. They're not saying that going through trouble... Is, is a virtue that gets you into heaven. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is the road to heaven is paved with trouble. There's not a detour that goes around and gets to the end without going through any trouble. The road, that narrow way, that straight narrow way, is paved with trouble. You have to go through the trouble to get to where we're going to go. First Peter 4.12 says this, Beloved, 
Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I don't know how to make it any clearer than that right there. When trouble comes, when suffering comes, when pain comes, when tribulation comes, he says, don't be surprised. Do not be surprised as if this is some weird thing that wasn't supposed to happen. Don't be that way. Expect it. Know that it's coming upon you. And notice, and we'll talk about this in just a second, it always has a purpose. It's coming to test you. So the point of all those scriptures is that tribulation is normal in this world for the Christian. We don't get out of, we we don't, it's not like Monopoly. We don't have a get out of jail free card and we get to go through all, it doesn't work that way, right? We're just, we're people, we live in a, we're fallen people. We live in a fallen world and fallen bodies and we have trouble just like everybody else. So affliction and trials and suffering is where we live. By the way, if you're not living there now, you will. If you're not there now, you will. Nobody, nobody gets out of this life without trouble. Nobody. So it's coming. It's coming if you're not there now. And you need to understand that. So learning this up front, learning that it's normal is going to be a great help to you when it comes. Okay? You won't be shocked and like, oh my gosh, how did this happen? Understand that it's normal. Now, Paul says that when we, you and I, are in the midst of tribulation, when we're in the midst of this trouble, he tells us to be patient, okay? Now, this is interesting because normally when you tell somebody to be patient, you're telling them that something's coming, right? If your kids are all wired up about Christmas and it's still November the 1st or whatever, right? You just say, look, be patient. Right? They can't be patient, but you tell them, be patient. It's coming. It's going to get here, right? Or their birthday or whatever the case may be. Be patient. Be patient. That means some solution, some end game is coming if we'll just be patient. Now, here's my question. What are we waiting on? When Paul tells us, be patient in tribulation, what is it that he that we're waiting on? Well, we don't have to guess. He's already told us that in Romans chapter 8. Paul says this, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it. What? With patience. What are we waiting for? The adoption of our bodies. Redemption, heaven, that's, that's, that's getting the, the body, this, this, this new body where we, we put off this old tent and we take on that new body of redemption. That's what we're waiting for. Paul said it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. You, that's a guarantee. Just be patient. You see, listen, there are a lot of people suffering in this world today. A lot of people out there suffering in this world And a lot of them, they're suffering, and I I hate to say this, but their suffering is absolutely pointless. Absolutely pointless. But not for you and I. You see, what Christ has done is He's broken into my suffering. He's broken into my suffering. And He Himself, who, who died on the cross for me, 
And he, and he endured the things that I did. He, he, he understands where I'm at. He has come into my tribulation and He has become the foundation of my hope. Christ became man and He embraced all our suffering. He chose it. He carried it. On His death and His resurrection, He defeated every bit of it. He defeated the moral evil, the physical evil, sin, Satan, uh, sickness, sabotage. He, he defeated them all. And He rose from the dead. And this triumph that He secured for us, those that trust in Him, freedom from sin, freedom from sickness, freedom from, from all the things that we absolutely hate. He, he obtained those freedoms, bought those freedoms, listen to me, partially now and perfectly in the age to come. You see... The Jews that lived 2,000 years ago, they thought the Messiah was going to come in and he was just going to clean everything up, right? He was going to throw the Romans out. He was going to restore the nation of Israel. He was going to make it so nobody got sick in their bodies anymore. The crops had no more pests, no more diseases. Everything was going to be like living in Eden. But it didn't happen. But you see, the mistake they made, and by the way, the health and wealth teachers make the same mistake today. They'll go around telling you that suffering is not for Christians. That Christians should never suffer. We'll talk about that in a second, which is never in the Bible. But that they make the exact same mistake the first Jews made. You see, when Jesus came the first time, it was not the consummation of the age. It wasn't the full redemption. It was the purchase of that. Are you with me? Do you know how many people... Jesus could raise anybody from the dead He wanted to. Do you know how many people He raised from the dead? Three. Three people. That's it. See, He wasn't coming to raise... He was coming to show that this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do for you. I can do it. I'm just showing you now partially, but one day it's going to happen. He healed bodies, opened eyes, made limbs grow for just a few people. He was just showing us, it, it, this is not the full end, this isn't heaven. But I'm showing you what it's going to be like. So the first coming was to purchase redemption and bring a foretaste of what's coming for you and I. And that hope, folks, listen to me, that hope is the basis of our joy even in the midst of suffering. That's the difference between Christians and non-Christians. There are people out there today suffering and drug abuse is going through the roof. Alcoholism is going through the roof because people are trying to escape. We don't have to escape. We don't have to escape because I've got an unshakable hope that I'm looking toward and it's coming and I can be patient even in my tribulation. Watch what Paul says, Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in what? Hope, there he comes. I can see it. I can see it. Even when my body's racked with pain. Even when, when, I'm, when my family's falling apart. Even when my finances... Whatever. I've got that hope. And I rejoice in the hope. I don't rejoice in the moment necessarily. I rejoice in the hope. So our hope is... That this is all going to change. Our hope is that this is all going to be made right. And that hope is the basis of our joy. And that is so crucial for us to see. Once again, this is why Christians can have joy when everything's peaceful and when everything's not peaceful. 
we can have joy when our bodies are healthy and when our bodies are not. It doesn't change our, 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 our joy. My joy isn't in my circumstances. My joy is in my hope in Christ. And that makes us different. See, Christians, as we walk through this life, Paul said in Colossians 3, set your mind on what? Things above, not on things below. These things are temporary. Set your mind on things that are eternal. Press toward those things. See, this is why, how, how Christians can do this, because we set our hearts on how, how good it will be in the age to come. How good it will be when I'm with Christ. And people may look at us and say, that's stupid. You're putting all your hope on after you die? Yes. Absolutely I am. Absolutely I am. Because that is, listen, what is guaranteed is that every single one of us is going to die. Then comes the judgment. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm putting my hope in that. By the way, we look to Jesus as our example. Hebrews 12, 12 says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. How did Jesus go through everything that he went through? Not just the suffering and the torture and all of that, but even people spitting in his face, people that he could have destroyed with a snap of his finger, and he didn't even say a word. How did he do that? He looked at the joy that was coming. He knew there's something coming. I'm going to be patient through this because there's something coming on the other side of this that's so much better. We do the exact same thing. Now, last thing I want to talk about with suffering and pain and tribulation. It's not pointless. It's purposeful. It's not pointless. It's purposeful. Listen to me. There is this idea in the world today. And unfortunately, not only is it outside the church, it's in the church, that suffering is to be avoided at all costs. Okay? There's this idea out there that su there's nothing good in suffering. You should avoid it. If you're not ready for that baby, kill it. Just kill it. Don't, don't suffer. It, 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 if, if, uh, if there's something out there that you, may cause you some pain, is this a, it, going through a part in your marriage, don't try to push it. Just get rid of it. Just, just walk out on it. You deserve to be happy. This idea of you deserve better. You don't, don't deal with suffering. That idea is prevalent all in our society. And folks, you will not find that anywhere in Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture. Let me give you a couple of Scriptures. 2 Corinthians 4.17 Paul says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Notice the two words. The affliction is light. What it's building inside of us is weighty. You see the difference? What, what, what's happening to us for just a few moments is light. But what it's creating in us is weighty. In fact, it's so weighty, Paul says, it's beyond comparison. I can't even find anything What's happening to us when we go through trials and troubles and tribulation is preparing, preparing for us inside of us an eternal weight of glory. I, listen, I don't really know how to explain what that is, but let me tell you, it's important. I can tell you that. I can't really tell you what it is, but I know it's real and I know it's important. Romans 5, 3 through 6 says this, 
Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. You've heard me say it before. Jesus said, those who endure to the end, what? Will be saved. Do you want endurance? Do you want to endure to the end? Yes? Guess how you get it? Suffering produces endurance. Suffering produces endurance. That's what Paul said. That road to heaven is paved. We must go through tribulation. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Listen, do you want to be a great man or great woman of God? Do you? Is that what you really want to be, a great? Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Endurance, suffering produces oak trees of the faith. I mean these giant oaks that just nothing can blow them down. You find people like that in the faith, I guarantee you 100% they've been through suffering. Because that has produced the endurance. That has produced the character that's in them. James 1, 2, 4, 1, 2 and 4. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet ver- trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces Endurance And let endurance have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Listen, <laughs> this is probably the, the, the best statement I'll make tonight. Christian joy and Christian hope and Christian patience and Christian endurance are birthed not in freedom from tribulation, but because of tribulation. Let me say that again. Real Christian love, real Christian joy, real Christian character, real Christian hope are not produced in freedom from suffering. They're produced because of suffering. Tribulation is the environment where that stuff grows. See, Scripture doesn't just tolerate tribulation. It never says, you know what, guys, listen, I hate to tell you this, but you're going to have to go through some trouble and just hang on. Just hang on. Just, just make it to the end. No. Tribulation serves us. Tribulation serves us. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Everything is working for our good. Everything is the trouble. Tribulations producing endurance, producing character, producing an eternal weight of glory in our life. That's why James says, count it all joy. Count it all joy when you go through things because you know that God is producing something in you. Don't, don't walk over. Don't say, oh, i got to avoid that at all costs. No. Well, you walk into it with your head held high, knowing that God's not angry with you, that God's working virtues in you. God's producing grace in you. God, I mean, he is, he is making you into an oak tree of the faith. See, folks, listen, this life can be hard. And I won't ask for hands, but I know a lot of you. I know the things that you're going through or have gone through. And the fact is, is we can do like the world, and we can give up on joy. And we can throw everything into drugs and alcohol, or we can throw into, into something that just says, well, while we're here, just live it up. There's nothing. We can just give up on joy. But Paul never gives up on joy. 
In fact, he commands it over and over and over again. So I leave you with this. Tribulations and troubles are normal. But there is a glory coming that is going to make all of it worth it. So we are to rejoice in that hope. Let's pray. Lord, as always, we thank you for your word. Uh, what an incredible word it is. Father, I uh, just pray tonight. I know there are some in our body, in our fellowship, in our family that are uh, facing tribulation, going through tribulation. If they're not in it right now, it's, it, it might be just around the corner. Father, in some way, Holy Spirit, take tonight's scripture and just make it real in our hearts. Father, help us to see that suffering is not something to be avoided, but su suffering is literally the environment where oak trees of the faith are grown. God, I want to be an oak tree. I, I want to be an oak tree. I know we all want to be oak trees of the faith. God, help us. Help us. Help us to see the end. Help us to be patient in that tribulation. Help us to understand this isn't a sprint, it's a marathon. But the race is going to end. And at the end, there's a crown of life to be given away. God, help us to run it the way that you want us to run it. Help us to run it with boldness and courage and strength and endurance and patience and hope and all of these other characteristics that you put inside of us. We love you. We thank you for all you do for this body and for the people in this body. And we give all the praise to you in Jesus' name. Amen.